Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. Tony Witt here. The recording of this latest episode has been fraught with more problems than usual, and I suppose we should consider ourselves lucky this sort of thing hasn't come up before. Uh, For one thing, we had to postpone recording because one of our panelists fell ill. Then, when they finally got better, we all got together at Dalton Hughes' house to uh, record, And it was only when I got home and tried transferring the input from my own microphone to the editing computer uh, from the recording laptop that I discovered that the files had, well, disappeared. Somewhere in the copying process, the files containing my own vocal track got lost, and nothing I could do would recover them. As a result, the intros and background info you'll be hearing in this episode are actually re-recordings, While I will do my best to boost the levels on my own parts of the discussion later on, apologies, etc. Without further ado, here it is. Enjoy! Howdy, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the gosh-darndest task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a seemingly equal gosh-darn three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Doctor Who fan since he's a wee little nipper, and that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Howdy. Oh, my. Uh, It's spreading. I'm at least from the South, so... Well, yeah, you at least make it sound like it's genuine. My family's from the South, too. It's just when I do it, it sounds like I'm putting on an accent, which I am. (laughs) We also welcome back our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. In the words of the book, your dentifactor for the evening. (laughs) Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page available at https forward slash forward slash patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we all you know have we know you all have those as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I've done a video at that page detailing our giveaways and talking about a special sweepstakes we'll be doing. If we hit our funding goals by April 6, 2018, we will be giving away a special first edition copy of the very first Doctor Who novelization, and that would be Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. 
If we achieve that funding goal, then one of our new patrons will receive the book that I've owned and maintained in great condition for nearly 15 years now. So go sign up as a patron at any level for your chance to win. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. At some point, we'd like to, of course, add some more names to that list. That would be really great. So go and sign up if you would. Addition. I thought say, it's going to be kidnapped off the street and brought in to appear on our podcast. No, they have to pay for that. That's actually another one of the prizes. This time, we're examining a novelization of a story that's undergone a great deal of re-examination since it first aired, The Gunfighters. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Gunfighters, adapted by Donald Cotton from a script that aired from 43066 to 52166, published by Target Books in November 1986. As of this recording in January of 2018, this title is currently out of print but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 152 pages. Yeehaw! Jesus, God, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. And I thought speaking fast <laughs> was, you know, going to be easier. The reason why I'm doing that accent is because the blurb is written. In that accent. In fact, without further ado, here's the blurb. Back in the gun-toting, hard-hitting, fast-shooting days of the old Wild West, when outlaws ruled the land and the good guys stayed off the streets, a troop of traveling players, Miss Dodo DuPont, Stephen Regret, and the mysterious Dr. Caligari, moseyed into the town of Tombstone one October afternoon. Their method of transportation is a lot peculiar, though. After all, a police box material out of thin air sure ain't the usual way to enter a sedate town like Tombstone. And when this doctor and his partners meet up with Wyatt Earp and the notorious Clanton brothers, they soon find out that the scene is all set for high noon at the OK Corral. Yes. And yes. I feel like I'm waiting in line at an amusement park. You kind of are. Between two families from, what, Tennessee or some other godforsaken place? Oh, I can just, I can just hear like we're, the... we're all from shitholes now. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Sorry, that <laughs> well, was my Well, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia are all a really long way from Arizona. This is true. I don't get the reference. I thought it was set in Arizona. Oh, I thought the story was set in Tombstone, Arizona. Arizona. Okay. You're right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. Here I was doing my shtick, and I completely forgot about the facts. Of the no, no, no. You <laughs> did just as well as Cotton, if not better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk about the historical on this one. By the way, another reason why I was doing the accent is because uh, as I sent you all the panelists the audiobook of mm-hmm. this, and you probably had a chance to listen to some of it, it is fabulous. It is Shane Rimmer, the unfortunately named Shane Rimmer, who was the only North American actor in the original. So he was the only convincing American accent <laughs> yeah. in the original. Everybody else's accent is just, oh, oh dear, oh mm. dear. But he reads the audiobook and it's just tremendous. Some of the best times I've ever had in my car. I'm not saying something. <laughs> All right, for decades, this story was considered the worst one that the series <laughs> had ever produced. <laughs> And this amuses you greatly. It was the worst story in Avengers history, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Isn't that the one where Captain Marvel ended up being taken by her husband, who was then her son, into the nether universe to be impregnated again and again? I was thinking of Carol Danvers. That, that is certainly an excellent candidate, yes. Yeah, I'd say that's yeah. the worst Avengers story. But 
thing is, that opinion of the story seemed to be borne out by the audience appreciation figures for the entire serial, which were the lowest of the series to date. Thing is, that lack of appreciation was not reflected at all in the ratings. They only dipped below 6 million for the last episode, and that's still an impressive figure for the series at this point. One of the reasons the story is considered such a failure, or was considered such a failure, is fan opinion, which can be traced back most obviously to Peter Haining's book, Doctor Who, A Celebration, which, as a teenager in 1983, I so desperately wanted, um, which said that the story was, quote, not good, it was bad, and it was ugly, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Took me it. a moment. Sorry. Exactly. Part of the reason for Haining's evaluation may have stemmed from the fact that, well, it's not a Doctor Who story in the sense that we know of, but a Western. And it's Western done by a British production team with British actors, most of whom couldn't hit an American accent with a dead cat on a string. One of the few who could, the aforementioned Canadian-born actor Shane Rimmer, would go on to write, uh, I'm sorry, would go on to read the delightful audiobook of the story in 2013. One other reason why it might be poorly regarded is The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon, which plays non-stop, and I mean non-stop, ah. all the way through the story, all four episodes, narrating the story and basically giving, uh, it's enough to drive a wooden Indian to distraction. In fact, let me play just a little bit of it. Ah. On their fingers and bells on their toes. The girls come to tombstone in their high silk hose. They'll dance on the tables or sing you a tune for whatever's in your wallet at the last chance saloon. tunes that's not bad but it's just catchy enough that it becomes an earworm and you can't get it out of your ear and it just there are a few tunes good enough for four episodes of audio wallpaper yeah yeah so it's one of those and it, it reminds me of that episode in that uh, uh, episode of uh, Star Trek Next Generation where Deanna Troy goes almost insane from hearing the same song <laughs> over and over again with rings on their fingers and bells on their toes, girls come to tombstone But once these elements are ignored, it's no worse a story than, say, the Sensorites or Galaxy Four, and in many ways, it's a damn sight better than those two stories put together. That is some very fine damning with faint praise. It's no yeah. worse than mm -hmm. these other stories I don't like. Yeah, right. Which well, is fine. I mean, the, I'm talking about the televised story mm. though, because the televised story I will put on in the background because it's fun until that song gets the better of me, and I'm like, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> no more. See, he perform on a harpsichord that's out of tune. Yes, that's the other thing. It really ha it has that all the way through. Uh, we've discussed Donald Cotton on this podcast before in episodes 12 and 19, and I regret to say this is the last time we'll be discussing him, oh. as the one script he contributed to the series after this one during the Trouton era was rejected. He did, however, go on to novelize his own two scripts, plus the Romans, this one nearly 20 years after it aired, and now we're reading it 32 years to the month after it came out in paperback, so that says something. A few things to note before we head into the book. 
It's a bit like going for the low-hanging fruit to point out the historical inaccuracies of any Doctor Who story, but particularly a story set in the gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> but there are a few things worth pointing out, uh, because Donald Cotton seems to have cared about them enough to have uh, either gotten them wrong or gotten them right. Doc Holliday was indeed married to a woman named Big Nose Kate, but her surname differs from that of the Kate in the book. Uh, Doc Holliday also did die in 1887 of tuberculosis. At the age of 36, he was not very old. He was kind of old by the standards of the time, mm -hmm. but if you look at photographs of him, because we have photographs of him, he does not look like an old man. And that's something that just about every pop culture version of the story seems to forget. These were relatively young men when they did what they did. There's absolutely no way that the Doctor could be confused with Doc Holliday unless they actually <laughs> absolutely nothing about him, yeah. which of course may have been the case. Well. Yeah, because they couldn't print photos everywhere. He's played by an older actor in the televised version who is a 48-year-old who's actually made up to look older. So I guess they're doing the whole Hartnell thing. And as for the book, while it would have made sense for Ned Buntline to have had this story told to him by Holiday, because Ned Buntline is indeed the one who wrote these dime novels in this style, it could only have happened if Buntline had come back from beyond the grave to do it. Because he died a year earlier in 1886. So, yeah, it's a bit surprising. And finally, Johnny Ringo actually existed, but he was not at the OK Corral or anywhere nearby. And as far as we know, he was not a lover of the classics. So that's one of the many <laughs> yes. wonderful editions so yes. that Tom makes the, in the novel. The full made. ten volume set in the saddlebags yes, was a nice in the touch. original Latin and the original vernacular. <laughs> Yeah, it's just brilliant. I immediately enjoyed this. Uh, just getting into just the way it's written, the language he uses, it very much just gets the feeling of a Western. It was it was fun to read. There was always something going on in it, even though it branches off into different places. I I was always interested to see what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. um, even though, like we said, I was like, how would they ever confuse the Doctor? <laughs> for for someone else yeah. for doc holiday but exactly um but no yeah it was really fun to read it it's okay. really fun Quiet, Allison? this is like uh what i imagine cotton would have written as an extremely clever 12 year old oh, like my. well no no <laughs> seriously and i don't mean that as as bad an insult as it sounds like but so laboriously zany so, I don't know, tiresomely riotous, if that makes sense. <laughs> so self-consciously attempting to be witty, so overworked, and yet there are some great flashes in there of the cotton that we know and love. Mm -hmm. So I think before, I forget which of the previous novels I referred to as an uncomfortable uh, fit, like an aspic with fish and olives in it. Um, I, I'd like to use a, a different gelatin analogy tonight because apparently my repertoire is limited. Uh, there's, there's an old thing where you can put any kind of fruit into Jello brand Jello other than fresh pineapple yeah. because the, some, there's some kind of enzyme and it will keep it from setting up. You have to put canned yeah. pineapple in. Uh, this book has not set up properly. So I, I appreciate trying a Western style. I love cotton style. They do not mix ever. And everything that's funny is when Cotton's reverting back to his usual style. So I've got an excerpt here of uh, about halfway through the book when Big Nose Kate... I thought at first you were saying that Cotton was married to someone named Big Nose Kate. No, no. I was like, very excited. Like, really? Tell us more about that. Um, 
But, uh, so she has left up a, a bit of a Dear John letter, and it starts with, um, why you ornery, spineless, downwind skunk. What kind of belly-crawling, uh, ham-hearted, down-low, white-livered apology for a no-good, pistol-packing, knife-fighting, dental-practicing prairie dog do you think you are, huh? And it's like, yeah, it's kind of funny, but, you know, after like 40 pages of that, you're kind of fatigued by the relentless onslaught of cliches. But then the last, um paragraph of the letter is I have left a stew on the stove which kindly do not allow to burn as you will shortly do in hell if there's any justice which I doubt <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was terrific yes. and yeah. it's much more dropping the, the, the full West, the western affectation and going back to Cotton's usual style mm-hmm. so I don't think he blends them well okay <laughs> that's actually one of the things I quoted uh, in my notes um, because uh, my, my favorite part of that letter is when she loses her mind. she says, wait, where was I? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> she goes on with it. Yeah, which is something that we've seen him do in the Romans, and definitely the Mythmakers has some of that as well. So where do we start? What do we think of the framing device? Because obviously Ned Buntline is not in the original, and... This writing style is not a representation of Ned Buntline's style, except in the most probably verbose and crazy way. It's actually more of a mirror of uh, Mark Twain. Yes, I thought um, that. Well, at first I thought it's not a, a reflection of any human writing style. And, <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, some parts of it had, had sort of moments of Mark Twain sentence yeah. construction. Yeah, it does. It really is a shame that Bumline didn't cooperate with the story by just staying alive another year because then we wouldn't have to <laughs> say anything about it. I was actually kind of unsure when he was doing Buntline style and when he was doing it in the voice of Buntline and when he wasn't because it seemed to kind of drop in and out it does. into his usual style. Mm-hmm. And the sort of... Okay, vernacular has grammar rules and Cotton doesn't understand them for this style of speech. So I was frustrated when he dropped into it with just sort of grammar that doesn't actually exist anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of uh, instead of a regional vernacular. So um, not right here. It was going back and forth between fairly elegant phrasing and then a double negative and a phrasing that actually doesn't go with that double negative mm. as well. Mm. Where he... Fortunately, he didn't keep the voice of Buntline, yeah. but it was kind of all over the place. Well, it's got a verisimilitude to it. But that verisimilitude has that implication of not being true. It just has what we would now call in 2018 truthiness to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it should be in that voice, but... Okay, here we are. Page 107, uh-huh. which wasn't no glee party either. And then a couple of pages later, but this was altogether too much for Wyatt, who had a who had a pretty full dossier at the moment. That's <laughs> just the the, the, the stuff. But I mean, I I prefer when he reverts to his usual style, but he's not quite a not make, well. They don't set up here. I can see that. I I think this is one of those books that I, I'm amazed. I'm going to say this. It actually works better if it's read aloud, because I specifically listened to the audiobook all the way through first, hmm. and then reread the book. And found myself zipping through the book because I already knew what was coming. But also able to look at it and say, oh yeah, I remember that line being particularly good. Oh yes, that Mm -hmm. particular intonation loses something when it's on the page. But when it's spoken aloud, I mean, you can definitely tell that Cotton is much more of a dialogue writer than he Mm -hmm. is um, a prose stylist. 
because he likes putting words in the mouths of characters. We have not read a third person book by Cotton. Hmm. We never will. Um, I don't know if his two novels actually are in third person. I'd love to look them up and find out, but only if they're this funny. That's the main thing. So yeah, the style seems to fit for me, and I, I think that's probably it, but it does yeah. lose something on the page at times. It it seems like he's like pulling from multiple sources, though. He's like kind of this pastiche of, what's a Western? It's all these things. Yeah. And he's throwing it all together, and so it's kind of like, is, is it successful? Well, yes, because it is, but... Right. I feel like he was trying to write an episode of Hee Haw with all of the... Exactly! It comes of off as kind of like a variety show. That implies. Um, <laughs> I don't know, that could be pretty damn dignified. No, yeah. <laughs> that It's entertaining, but it's like, c- can it get a little too much? Yeah. I can see that. But I, I, I feel I the kind it. of embarrassment I feel when an American tries to write cockney style dialogue. Oh, that's and doesn't and doesn't understand how it works. Yeah. Doesn't understand the internal structure. Hmm. I'm not quite sure why I was more forgiving of it this time. Because usually that that's the first thing I would slam. Someone trying to work in a style that they're not suited to and yet this suited me down to the ground. You're but, a man of, of many passions. This is the weird thing, yeah. Um so characters. Actually, let's talk about our regulars first, because the Doctor is the Doctor, but not quite. Stephen is Stephen, mm-hmm. but not quite. And Dodo is Dodo, but the most Dodo we've ever seen Dodo be Dodo. And when is she from again? How if I know? Oh. I honestly don't. Um, and I'm not even kidding. Um, she joined at the end of the massacre, and that story is made in 1966. But so we she's assume not... she's from 66, but there's okay. no way of knowing. All we know is she's from the 60s. And as a matter of fact, in not next episode, but the episode after, remind me to ask that question. Okay, but well that makes sense, though. She's not from centuries in the future like Stephen no. is. Okay. No, she hasn't. She's contemporary. Yeah, supposedly. Even though it's hard to know what contemporary London she's from because at one point she acts like she's from 62 at one point she acts like she's 66 and you know is a mod and a swinger and in <laughs> cases she seems like she's prim proper from the 1950s oh. anyway what do we think of the regulars I mean so far I found Stephen and Dodo so cardboarded and interesting that I when you say the most dodoish she's ever been, I don't even know what that means. But I've only read a couple with her, so I, I no problem with the characterization because they are whatever they are in that story. So. I can see that. What about you? Yeah, Stephen. Stephen seemed a little less like strong man than normal. He kind of got pushed around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctor at times. Whereas he's usually kind of in control, this time he's kind of at the whims of everyone else and what's happening in the town. But in a way that actually worked for me, that he has this toothache at the beginning. Yeah. And he said, they say at the beginning that uh, we'll replace with vertebrates. Whether they're vertebrates, they're teeth. And whether they're teeth, they're, oh, ow. (laughs) So it did kind of work for me that he was not his usual self because he was sort of, you know, tripping headfirst around town in a way that we can all relate to with dental pain. Um, And then, yeah, Dodo, like, I don't, 
I don't really get a sense of who Dodo is quite yet, but um, I think I should probably explain that then. She has um, certainly more to do in this book. She, she, yeah, one that she actually yeah. has a lot more to do than Stephen and the Doctor do, oftentimes. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. She has a little more of a personality. In fact, Cotton adds some of that personality. He makes her a poker champion, of all things. Which I thought was just brilliant. <laughs> yes, she learned at finishing school. She learned yeah. at finishing school, because what else are you going to do in a British finishing yeah. school in the 60s? Of course. Learn how to shake down your sisters from for poker. I feel like this is a recurring trope. Of the, uh, the, of the sort of lady gambler who takes a more experienced, rougher character for all their worth because she's been in only the most socially cutthroat drawing rooms. Yeah, I think that might be it. Yeah. And it's a good trope because it's something that doesn't happen in the televised version, though they do get rid... Uh, they. Cotton. Cotton gets rid of my favorite dodo scene ever. Except he doesn't get rid of it, he transmogrifies it. When she threatens Doc Holiday with a gun and gets him to take her back to uh, Tombstone, mm-hmm. uh, the book has her basically still sitting up in the saddle behind him with the gun in his back and with it all the way to Tombstone. Yeah. <clears throat> the televised version is so much funnier because she's threatening him with a gun and he goes through the whole thing of, uh, you're t- are you aiming to kill me? And she says, no, I'm, I shall only hurt you in the arm well you you've got it aimed right between my eyes right now and she says oh really oh i'm sorry and she finally gets him to relent and take her back and then (laughs) then she collapses into him and says oh thank goodness can i have a glass of water that took it out of me (laughs) and when kate comes in because kate in the televised version knows they're going back and wonders what sort of party they're having Dodo says that she did something and tried to, uh, and he points out, one, that her gun had no bullets in it, and two, that he had his little gun trained on her the whole time, and she faints. <laughs> End of scene. It's a brilliant scene. It's uh, one of the few times that Jackie Lane gets to actually have some fun acting as Dodo, and it's, it's kind of in the book, but not in the book. Except for Dodo being strangely smarter in the book because she tells um, her that they're, they're going to New Mexico, <clears throat> which leads mm. Johnny Ringo on the line. Oh, path. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked for her to have like a transferable skill. It makes sense if she's from further in the future than the rest of them. That yeah. She'll find it a little easier to relate to. Yeah, I'd say so. She's given some amusing sort of inner thoughts. I have a quote here. Uh, uh, here she and Stephen were performing by urgent request of an armed audience, and here was little orphan Annie Oakley suggesting that they just sit some other things like that. that are some good comedic moments for oh, her. Yeah. <clears throat> Since when is the national anthem called America the Brave? That uh, that was strange to me, and I at yeah. first didn't realize that that was the song they were singing. Yeah, I had to look it up, and I, I think the British call it that. Hmm. I'm not sure it's ever been called that in in the states. But yeah, yeah. It's the Are they making anthem. fun of it? <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess. But they're they're singing the national anthem because they talk about that ridiculously hot, difficult high note. Yeah. Well, and they even say the first like two lines. And... Yeah, exactly. And, and it I is think... indeed very hard to sing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they talk about going into the uh, not often sung second and third verses and on to the fourth, which yeah. is just impossible to sing if you don't know it. Yeah. Kind of weird. Stephen Regret Taylor. Yeah. 
what do we make of Stephen? Regret Taylor, who... Let's see, let's let's review. In astronaut school, Stephen learned fencing. He learned acting. And now we find out that he learned singing and mm-hmm. apparently can play the piano as well. You know, well-rounded. Very well. Renaissance man. Yeah. Yeah, so that makes him one of the roundest flat characters. <laughs> I do like that he learned to sing in school and Dodo learned to play poker. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know. I mean, we'd expect her to know piano somehow, but yeah, it's just strange. Mm. Randomly, there's a Dark Tower reference in here. Yeah. When did those start coming out? Uh, 80s. Okay. Yeah. I thought it seemed awfully contemporary. Yeah, Yeah, so I found that interesting, too. It means that Cotton apparently is reading Stephen King, which is strange. Even though, are you talking about the Chad Roland one? Yes, yes. That's that's actually an older reference. Okay. But it definitely has something to do with the uh, Stephen King thing. I think that's a different Dark Tower. Uh, yeah, I'm, referencing. I'm, I would not put it past him. I would not put it past Cotton to when he was not, you know, drinking and smoking in some bar and making urbane references <laughs> to women folk. Which, Say some bar or some bar. Bar. Okay, so I actually can't tell when he's doing bad regional dialogue and when he's making fun of it. He has herbs say at one point, them's just an uppity parcel of vagrants. Not a parcel of varmints, yeah. but a parcel of vagrants. And I can't tell if he's doing some like James Joyce level stuff here. I think what he might be doing is making fun of <laughs> what would normally be a. Uh, or he's just that bad at it. No, no, no. I, I think it actually is him because I noticed some word substitution going on too. It's like, wouldn't this phrase normally be this? Oh, so yeah, it kind of works the same way. That and Cotton's tendency towards alliteration comes up quite a bit too, which is just darling. This so is the uh, doctor says, if you don't let us out of here, I shall have no alternative but to apply for writs of habeas corpus. Yes. <laughs> or, this here is the writs of many a happy corpse. <laughs> very exactly. <laughs> the doctor gets a very different part to play in this, in this book. He does get a gun at some point in the televised version, but he's not at the OK Corral at all. And he's certainly not holding a shotgun. And he's certainly not accidentally shooting the bad guys as needed by the plot, which is just hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) You're shaking your head. I can just, yeah. I can see Hartnell doing it and saying, oh, that's the problem. Oh, <laughs> so sorry, sir. I didn't mean to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm just... this, this episode brought to you by the word, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm just visualizing Hartnell you know, with the shotgun. And it's... Yes, and Hartnell does get to do a few really fun things, like when the doctor ends up accidentally putting the Clantons against the wall and then yeah. has to ask Kate, I'm, I'm not sure what we're doing. What do we do next? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is brilliant. But, uh, yeah. But we're talking about the book. What about the other characters? Who are some of the standouts... Who are the people in your neighborhood? The people that you meet each day? Who are the, some of the th- people that you like the most in this book? So I have somehow managed to sit out the entire OK Corral segment of pop culture. Really? I think all the movies, all the books, etc. Even Star Trek? 
Uh, hang on, I've seen that one. I think I've seen some it's of the movies. It's very different than this one, that's for sure. But um, is Wyatt Earp usually uh, religious like this? Mm-hmm. Or is this one, something that that's caught him? Okay. Um, he has a few little lines in the televised version that kind of imply he might be, but not to this degree and not to the point that everything he says has this kind of biblical patina. Yeah, which actually I found, I found amusing and yeah, wasn't familiar with. So. Yeah. It's something like introduced as a tall man. He was lean, uh, with hell, the hellfire eyes of a misogynistic Methodist preacher. And I've got to say, when I think Methodist, I don't normally think hellfire or misogynistic no, no, no. off the top of my head. <laughs> but something about... Um, you know, he looked like he was in the pulpit rail of the last ten chapel left standing in Gomorrah, which I don't think makes any sense as an image, and yet no, it does work in the moment. So. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, I, I love that characterization of my herb. Um, and it makes up for... Give us an additional screen. texture. Yeah. <clears throat> it makes up for the on-screen joke, because the doctor can never get his name right. He calls him Mr. Warp. <laughs> that is, that is good. Just so funny. But why it's interesting that Masterson has more characterization on the page than he does on screen because he's just kind of there on screen whereas here he how would you describe him he's trying to keep the peace but also protect himself in a way mm-hmm. how so um well just how he's trying to coerce Erp into to different actions and mm-hmm. uh you know trying to get Doc to leave so that the clans will leave them alone. Just kind of like, yeah, watching his own ass by, yeah, by trying to look out for everyone else. As the historical Bat Masterson was said to have done, yeah, um, especially since, yeah, I I did some reading up on the historical events and these people. Oh my God, it's no wonder they passed in the legend, because Wyatt Earp is somebody who at this point in his life was a lawman, but had just been running a brothel. Oh, you in know. another town? <laughs> the gig economy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Different type of gig, yeah, I imagine. I oh, my. Oh, speaking of gigs, there was the uh, Oklahoma reference. The oh, I missed that. On top. Oh, I missed that entirely. Jezebel Babylon commented her, no, Kate Elder of Sourdust Creek. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was actually, she had... A lot more characterization and more dimension than then one of ex- one would have expected. Thought it was just going to be like one big hooker joke, but yeah. she has more to do than almost anyone else in the in the story, she and uh, is shown to be more competent than almost anyone else. It has some of the best lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's um, she's definitely the most interesting character in the televised version too, and she does get a lot more here to do. So I think it's one of those few times that. Cotton, even though he has extreme moments of misogyny himself, I find that his treatment of both Kate and Dodo in this show a lot more progressivism than the actual male characters give them credit for. Yeah, I, I, there, there are people who... There are a lot of hooker jokes made at Kate, and he starts by talking about, oh, ha, ha, she has a big nose and big feet. Oh, now, great, this is going to be a real treat. Um, but at the same time, she's shown to be mostly the one with her head on straight, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That, uh, Except when it comes to her man. 
she yeah, gets all really jealous. You have to have the jealousy trope, apparently, or you know, everyone's dick falls off. But yeah. um, <laughs> well, given who's telling the story and who who the, to whom they're telling it, you could say that part of that is just you know poetic license on Doc Holliday's part. It's like, oh yes, they were fighting over me, just like wild cats in a sock drawer. Well, Herb Sister, at one point, you don't understand what the Clintons will do to a defenseless woman, and the next line is, she didn't recognize the description. That <laughs> exactly. summarizes the way he describes it. Yeah, I, and I love that. I love the fact that not only does she not recognize the description, she doesn't fit it either. She's not defenseless in any way. How about the Clintons, especially their search for the ever-undying metaphor? Uh, the like Three Stooges. Yes. Uh. <laughs> Um, the phrase maker. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, they're just kind of, yeah, stereotypical typical themselves. There's the dumb one, mm-hmm. the smart leader one, and then the, the third one who's vying for attention in some ways, you know. Phineas. Um, yeah. yeah, so. Here's a weird thing. The the Clanton brothers on screen just, just kind of blend into one uber bad accent to me yeah i can't tell them apart on the page i can tell them apart really well because yeah. phineas is the one who's constantly trying to come up with the best metaphor yeah. and keeps coming back to frogs yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the point that one of his brothers says what is this about frogs Are you a pervert or something which is one of the best yeah. <laughs> yeah. what if he says not that kind <laughs> <laughs> I think the uh, introduction of Paul Clinton gives us the best passage of the book, arguably. Yes, please read that. Yes. When the sunset, uh, where the sunset used to be, was now the Clinton Ranch, and the difference was immediately apparent. For one thing, whereas the sunset had a golden testament of glory, and poets had said so, the ranch fell somewhat short of that high standard in several respects, and everybody said so. Squalid was the word they generally used. Paul Clinton claimed to keep it that way in memory of his wife, God rest her tongue, whose early death had followed hard upon her premature burial back in 75. (laughs) You could see her temporary grave near the blocked overflow from the hog pond, if you weren't careful. And And along now about evening, it was the old man's habit to wander gladly down there and get in some spitting practice, a thing he hadn't hardly gotten enough of when she was alive. It was at these times of solitude he would remember his early pioneering days when he had tracked West to carve out a false name for himself, far from her father's shotgun, and also with what soulless devotion she and the Pinkertons men had finally tracked him down to this blessed corner of nowhere. But now he was alone in the world, apart, that is, to say from his four fine boys, no, three now, he chuckled to remember, who seemed to be doing their damnedest to remind him of her. Still, if they were all he'd got, heaven help him. So he tossed a bunch of poison ivy onto the hallowed mound. He strode briskly for a man with his unpleasant diseases back to the chilly intimacy of his old colonial kitchen, so-called because of the termites who were into it in a big way to see if they were home yet. That was a pretty good macabre little short story right there. And the reference to the dog biting him affectionately (laughs) on the heel. Yes, yes. yes. You know, misogyny is usually contextual. If that were, if Ma Ma Clinton were their sole female character in the book, that would be different. But I think set with the context of Big Nose Kate and don't know what they have to do in this book, that was actually quite delightful. Oh, I agree. (laughs) 
And I think it's because it plays with some of the tropes, because mm-hmm. the whole trope of Clinton's versus Earp and uh, Doc Holliday is over revenge mm-hmm. for a brother. And mm-hmm. this flips that on its head because the Clanton brothers, when they think about it, they realize they didn't really like Reuben all that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they love carving out a false name for himself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's not even family honor because there is no family honor. Mm-hmm. It's not love of family because they don't love each other. And it's not even necessarily money, even though money does come into it. There was that weird reference to paying Ringo on the Yankee dollar. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look that up. Did anyone get that? I didn't understand what that was about. Um, Yankee dollars, if I remember correctly, were at that time certificates of deposit, which means Mm. that you kind of had to have them to cash in to get the gold. Okay. Uh, But if you didn't cash it in, then the gold reverted back to... They're like bear bonds, basically. Yeah, the person who originally owned that money got it back. And I think what happened in the case of Seth Harper is he gave the gold... And Seth Harper's not bad, so we can't get it back. Mm. So, there's that. Best body joke. Uh, Kate is complimented on her forthcoming nuptials, and she looks down and says, Oh, yes, most folks have them. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that in this poem. <laughs> Especially talking about Stephen and Dodo getting the third room to have a rumpus room. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but for like every one really funny one, there are like eight lame ones. Okay, show uh, give me some lame ones. Give our uh, list some lame ones because <laughs> most of what you've read aloud so far, I've already I also had marked down. Well, but I've read aloud is my favorite part. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it's just sort of relentless zaniness mm-hmm. that um, it doesn't. You're right. It does not let up, and. But I think that's probably why I like Red Loud so much better, yeah. because it comes across as a, um, almost like a Jerry Clower kind of extended, um, and I'm sure I've sent our listeners rushing to Wikipedia to remind themselves who Jerry Clower is, because only people of my age and my particular weird geographic background... No one was alive then. Him. Yeah, of course not. That was in the, the dawn times, the pre-dawn <laughs> times, the times of the classics like Charlie Ringo would read about, which is just hilarious. Great heavens, he seems to be dead, diagnosed the doctor. I love that. For yes. some reason. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course the doctor... This is outrageous. He had no business whatever to get himself killed. He should have been guarding Dodo with his life, a man in his position. Of course he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> So pretty well. See, I, I didn't write down the, the the parts I found lame. I wrote down the jokes that I thought were funny. Did you not like the uh, herb? <laughs> Shut, cover your goddamn mouth when you do that. Oh, I missed that. Oh no, that's one of the best ones, I think. Uh, I enjoyed the uh, the doctor ordering milk whenever he went into the saloon. Yes. He does it on yes. screen too, and it's so adorable. And like that would have been a given. A dead giveaway. Like, this isn't the man you're looking for. <laughs> the guy you're looking for is, you know, a partier, and he goes into a saloon and orders milk. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, um, who is it? Um, Charlie the barman thinks, he's <laughs> just trying to figure out where he can get milk at this time of night. Maybe yeah. he can press the cat in the service. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a nice description I like. It's more normally, um... Cotton strength is dialogue. Doc Holliday had chosen to advertise his whereabouts with a simple but striking device of a king-size hardwood decayed tooth suspended over the sidewalk from an ornamental iron bracket, printed bright red to simulate the appearance of a bleeding gum. 
Yeah. Yeah, there's there's some lovely background stuff here. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, Tombstone gets described in so much more loving detail here that it actually becomes a town, whereas on screen, God, help us. The OK Corral itself is on film set, because it has to be. You're shooting even blanks, but you can't do that in a studio. And then the OK, I'm sorry, the um, Last Hand Saloon and every other set is in the small set at Riverside or wherever it was, and it's just, yeah. And it looks like every every black and white Western made on a really low budget with really bad British accents. On the page... Is that a major genre? Yeah. What? Is that a major genre? Well, it is. Low- <laughs> yeah. It kind of is. Whereas on the page, you get all these references to uh, Eddie Foy, who it turns out was in Tombstone at the time of the O.K. Corral incident. I had to look that up and I was like, Eddie Foy was actually touring the country at that point? Yes, he was, amazingly. Um, and. Which leads to lines like Wyatt calling the theater a haunt of vice and corruption and bad statement. Oh, the notices were good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, nice. yes, I did like that. Okay, here's an example of, you know, lame things I don't usually write down, but then Tony put me on the spot, Dan's eyes. I tried. All right. How in the hell should I know, grumbled Seth. I ain't running no general information service, am I? All I do know is what I heard, that he wrote in this morning. Now just let me get this straight, said Phineas, unabashed. You mean you never seen him neither? Land sakes, I thought that was why you came along, so if you could... And it's just paragraph after paragraph of fillers of cliches and faux folksiness. So it's yeah. not... It is just kind of cringy, and it's Maybe. without... Cringe without end, amen and yeah, amen. And I have a feeling, given uh, reading the, uh, the Goodreads reviews, that American readers of the book have more of a reaction to it like that than British readers do. Even though it could be British readers. We do richly deserve it for our cultural sins. Oh, yeah, because we exported this stuff yes. in the first place. And it's a, the, the version I read in the PDF is 130 pages. It's about a 70-page book. In there, I think, of 130 pages. Yeah. And I think you'd be right. Because, again, the televised version is a lot of, oh, they've mistaken the doctor for Doc Holliday. That that works to Wyatt Earp's advantage because he wants to get the Clintons wrong-footed. But, oh, no, this has happened, and now this is happening. And now <laughs> Stevens run afoul of the Clintons and is having to sing yeah. the ballad of the Last Chance Saloon because that's what he and Dodo sing during that scene. And it's like, oh, my God, not again. Yeah, it's enough to make you pop your claws, if that was a Western saying. Why not? They all are now, apparently. They all are now. <laughs> they might as well be. But, yeah, it's interesting. I, I um, felt kind of ground down by it, if that makes sense. Of course, mm-hmm. it was probably also, probably also ground down by being sick for a week. So. That would do. Once again, I'm uh, <laughs> not, not, not approaching it um, with my best face. Whereas, I feel, I feel transported. I feel completely enlightened and enlivened by all this. Okay, this so you were dropping ecstasy when you were this, in I other probably words. probably was, <laughs> and given the fact that I was driving at the same time, probably not the best thing. But lines like chapter 23, dismounting they hitch their horses, who had been afraid something like this might happen, in positions chosen to provide suitable cover. And it's like, even the horses are getting in on it. They're like, oh, God. Like, again. why? <laughs> yes. And the people of Tombstone, that whole bit where Wyatt sneaks up on the Clantons, 
And Bat says, well, that's a bit, not a bit corny, isn't it? And he's like, well, it works. And he does it. And then Bat starts telling the story of someone who got snuck up on. And the crowd starts groaning because they've heard it before. Uh, again. <laughs> it's like, oh, not this again. Shit. And it works again. But, yeah, just this lovely kind of um, upending of tropes, which can get... Tiresome, I imagine. I didn't think there was much upending of tropes. I thought there was just delivery of tropes. Really? And then okay, more well, tropes, and then a third layer of tropes. It might be. I, and I, I think you're up to... I'm mostly I'm bummed because I've enjoyed the other cotton we've read so much, and I felt like mm-hmm. about 25% of this was the cotton that I've enjoyed, and the rest of it was this sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know, greasy overlay. Yeah, I understand. What do we think of the deaths in this book? Because I think... I think that, uh, what's his name's death? Seth Harper's death is probably the funniest death ever to be committed in print in the Doctor Who novelization. I don't remember it at all. Um, get shot <laughs> between the eyes. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's a surprise because they were so very close together that there was enough space to do so. And, yeah, and then thinks about it and then realizes he doesn't have anything to think with, so he just <laughs> leaves it at that. <laughs> yeah, that worked. They're kind of depicted in a, in a more, like, not gruesome, but very detailed. I mean, they're talking about picking and cleaning up brains off of the bar, and it's just like I did not need. No, I don't want to think about that. But it, but they didn't warn. Well, the cotton does warn. I know, and the thing is, like, we've read about things that worse Much that have worse. happened. Yeah. But something about the way that's described, it's like, ugh. That's ugh. true. In fact, there's one commentator that I have read who says that. After 1986, the Doctor Who books cease to be for teenagers, mm. and they become collector's items mm. for adults. And you can kind of see that shift in the writing style here, because Cotton's not writing for teenagers, or he's mm. not mm. toning down no. anything. See, I thought it was more toned down for teens. I like, don't think so. For a book that, you know, involves a lot of sex work references, it's never explicit. And, like, the body jokes are pretty PG-13. True, but it has them. Which yeah. is something that the original didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's something that a lot of the other books that we have read could have done and haven't. So I, I think that's that's Cotton's thing. I think it's Cotton's, like, Ian Martyr trying to put that speech about fellatio in at the beginning of the novelization mm-hmm. of The Rescue. It's like, either he was hopped up on cancer meds <laughs> at the time... Or he was like, you know, I might as well go for broke and see if I can do this. Yeah. And yet we still get that line, get it, 69. <laughs> it's like, yeah. really? And that's a post-1986 book. So um, there's also a lot of goddamns. Yeah, plenty. But I, I don't have a problem with swearing as long as it's done skillfully. No. And there was a fair amount of thudding, gratuitous swearing that wasn't funny or shocking or I don't but know it didn't produce much effect just sort of filler it's something we haven't really experienced much of that's true um, and so that's kind but, of but felt wasted somehow it, yeah it's totally superfluous it's it's. in fact when was, when was the first time we had someone swear wasn't it um... it's only happened a, a few it's been, times it feels like there's been an occasional hell or damn but it's been kind of a big event it was it was Ian in the Sensorites because doesn't he say God damn it at one point and maybe and that yeah. caused me to just freak out. But was it was like, it was like one instance and this they said it like four times in one page. Yeah. Um. 
Not that I'm like clutching the pearls here. No, I don't care. But it's, it's not just, done especially humorously or well, artfully. No, but there is some verisimilitude to it, and as much as this book has any, mainly because someone else pointed out if you watch an episode of say, um, oh god, what is the name of that western show that I've never watched from uh, HBO? Yeah, I watched one episode of that. Westworld. No. Uh, no. No. Uh, um, the one with Ian McShane. In it. Yes. Oh my god, what's it called? I, I have no idea what the linguistic accuracy was of that show, though. Because that was Pretty like accurate. such a carpet bombing of profanity that I was curious to know what, if it was something they were sort it, of it manufacturing enough. for the show or if it was something that was based on what they... It was enough that right. people at the time actually looked into it and they said, oh yeah, mm. the Old West was just one long swear session from the uh, start Deadwood. to finish. Deadwood, yeah. thank you, mm-hmm. that's it. If you watched an episode of Deadwood and put it by an episode of... Um, of the gunfighters. Well, to paraphrase Dorothy Parker, it would be a very silly thing to do. <laughs> There's a, an old joke about a, someone taking their great grandmother to see a football game for the first time. And it's it, it's still sort of in the in the genre of the uh, Andy Griffith routine about a guy who's seeing a football game for the first time. But apparently, at the end, they ask, "Well, Grandma, what do you think?" And she says, "Well, if it's a game, it's too much, and if it's a war, it's not nearly enough." <laughs> so if they're doing Old West swearing, well, if they're doing a teen book, it's too much, and if they're doing Old West swearing, it's not nearly enough. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that, and maybe that was your issue with it too—that it, it wasn't quite at the level you needed it to be at. Swear yeah. or not swear, there is no try. It was, it, well, it was just, we're, we're talking about kind of the the audience changing. Before, yeah. it was very much aimed at young adults, and so it's like, no swearing, it's kind of chastised in a way, mm-hmm. or chased. Um, and so, yeah, just seeing, seeing Goddamn Used, yeah, it's like, okay, well, if we're doing it, do it. Yeah, yeah. Go for just it. Go for it, but... Well, that's still going to happen. I mean, we are, let's see, how many years out from The Virgin New Adventures and the book Transit, in which we get the first time the word fuck is ever used in a, a bit of Doctor Who printed fiction. Mm. And very quickly the BBC jumps on that and says, ah, <laughs> and they come up with... Yeah, <laughs> what do they say again? They are, ah, <laughs> because they, they clutch their pearls. <laughs> yeah. They haunt you, it sounds like. They, yes, come, they, they float through the window. With, ah! with <laughs> and uh, they came up with the portmanteau of cruck, which ends up being even worse because that word comes up in every single New Adventures book from then on. <laughs> it's kind of like it would have been better just to keep the occasional F-bomb than have right. several. Right, then give them carte blanche. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Even, That's good, though. I don't think the doctor ever says it, but yeah. But then the Doctor has, hasn't actually sworn until the new series, so. And again, mild. Mild swearing. Yeah. Except that some people go on about, you know, bloody being used in the new series, and it's like, really? Really? That's like a saying gosh darn to some degree, isn't it? Right. It's, Talk about it's not the same. Yeah. Well. Exactly. Other things we liked, other things we disliked. Mmm... <laughs> Someone says, oh, I don't think Kate's the receptionist for the dentist. And someone says, well, she does keep an open house. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and Dodo helping, uh, helping with the shooting of Ringo. 
Back Holiday, she holds up the, the mirror. And yeah. The, yeah, that does not happen on screen, but it is that's a brilliant good. moment. Shot behind the back. That's, Shot behind the back. Yeah, that's good. Um, I enjoyed when the, the doctor was looking for the saloon and he went into the house of ill repute. And they <laughs> welcome him with open arms. And the way they put that, they said <laughs> he was looking for his friends, but it was a different set of yeah, friends yeah. than yeah. what he found. Yeah. Yeah. Young friends, that was it. He was looking for his young friends, and it was a different set of young friends. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Uh, but, um, Doc Holliday was a dentist, as it turns out. That's where the doc comes from. He had a... <laughs> that was a good premise for getting them there. He's yeah. looking for the doctor who wants a dentist. I always thought it was made up for the story, but no, no, he was a, he was actually a tra- practicing dentist. Um, Stephen apparently has read Pilgrim's Progress, which is just <laughs> astonishing to me. I don't know. It's what it was part of his repertoire in school. You know, <laughs> yes, no. he had to read stuff like 16th century literature. I think it's 16th century. I can't remember. The mention of the Buntline special, I, it's just, yeah, I could, obviously I could go on and on about this book, so I'm not going to. Yeah. But, um, other things that we missed, anything that you want to um, talk about? Well, just speaking, speaking of dentists, I, I would not want to go to the dentist in this time. No. I mean, Stephen, Stephen even kind of gets a, a, an odd joy out of. The doctor doesn't realize there's no anesthesia. Yes, that's yes. a good exchange in there. <laughs> and then his two options are a gun to the head or you can have some whiskey. Yeah, some knock on the cranium. Yes. And that reassured the doctor for a second when he heard the word cranium. Yeah. And the doctor takes a swig. That's, it's big. You notice the <laughs> yes. he actually takes a swig, which he doesn't get to do on screen, even though Hartman... Ah, uh, not a drunk. He yeah. just drank a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's true, though. He did drink a lot. <laughs> one of the best stories about Hartman, and it has to do with alcohol, is that one night, he and a friend, towards the end of his tenure on Doctor Who, probably around the time he was doing uh, The Gunfighters, uh, were walking home one night, and I guess they were making a lot of noise, and the police stopped them. And Hartnell said, "Don't you recognize who I am? I'm the bloody doctor." <laughs> and the police were like, they had no idea who he was. I was like, "All right, calm down, old man." They finally brought him back to the cottage where he lived with his wife, and it was hilarious. But almost as fun as Tom Baker stumbling out of the bar in the morning. Having a young fan come up to him and say, would you sign this for me? And Tom Baker saying, one second. Turning aside, puking, <laughs> and then signing whatever it was that was going to be signed. Classy. I love drunk doctor <laughs> stories. I really do. Anyway, um, anything else? I just said I was done with it halfway through. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, because my expectations were high. Whereas the previous book, my expectations were very low, and so I actually really enjoyed the first part of it yeah. more than I expected. And I think, yeah. yeah, I think coming off of the book that we read before this, and I'm having trouble remembering the book we read before this. Oh, Celestial Toy Celestial Toymaker. Yes. Coming off Celestial Toymaker, anything would seem like a triumph. Seriously. Yeah. I could definitely see how, if, if you weren't digging the style, if you weren't digging the framing device, that this would just be laborious like yeah. like trudging because it is 
there's so much. It's so dense. There's so much there. But fortunately, um, there was cash and poke plenty to support the middle-aged old-timer slogging out his last bare-knuckle bout with tuberculosis in the private room set aside for this purpose. There is a, a story that may or may not be true about um, for Teddy Roosevelt's book about San Juan Hill, the type, uh, the uh, printer having to order more eye for the typeface. They ran out of eyes with Roosevelt talking about them so much. They may have run out of hyphens for that paragraph <laughs> yes. and had to order an additional shipment. Thereof. Yeah, Cotton seems to like those quite a bit. I love hyphens, but I, I have limits. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently with this book we have reached, yeah. uh, which is a shame because we're, I mean, this is a very no. stylized novelization, and I think that's why it's one of those novelizations you love or you hate, really. Yeah. It, it, it is every bit as polarizing as the televised story. Well, we are much closer to um, the, uh, the American West of the uh, 1880s than we are to uh, Rome in the time of Nero. Yeah. So, so the linguistic offenses stand out to us more <laughs> and are more obvious to us, where uh, there, there aren't uh, really any ancient Romans left to annoy with English language novels. True. Even though we still do have Cotton's... Uh, clever anachronisms, even though there aren't yes. nearly as many of them. Um, and we at least get an explanation of how Doc Holliday knows about the TARDIS because Dodo told him. Yeah. And it's like, good, I'm glad that yes. that plot hole gets yeah. covered up and papered over because the televised version doesn't know, obviously. Isn't told because he's not telling the story. And it's just kind of lovely that he is. It felt phoned in to me for Cotton. Okay. His so, other books have felt more like a, I don't know if labor of love is the term, but more craftsmanlike than this okay. one. Okay, we'll tell you yeah. what. We'll get into the Goodreads so that you can say that again. <laughs> As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews and the book written by other readers and follow up with your own ratings. Uh, by the way, if you're listening to this podcast want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, you know what to do. I've said it so many times, I'm just not going to say it anymore. The average rating for this book out of five stars is 3.23, which is lower than Celestial Toymaker. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that seems unjust. Yeah. I Lots think, of people don't like Westerns, I guess. I would think so, too. Um, Stormhawk gave the two eggs, behind uh, stars, and says, Save me from Brits who try to write American. It comes off poorly, even if it's done well, and it's not done well here. The only thing I can imagine that might be worse is Brits on television trying to play American, so I'm grateful that I've never seen this episode of Doctor Who. The tale is told in first person, narrated in this instance by Ned Buntline, designer of the famous Revolver and writer of Penny Dreadful novels, who flings anachronisms faster than a two-tongued frog catches flies. Similar analogies are annoyingly strewn through the book. It comes off more West End than Western. <laughs> I see what you did there, you big bird. I wish Target had cared enough to edit the Doctor Who books more severely. But I guess they figure that kids and Whovians don't care that much about good storytelling. Not more thoroughly, but more severely. Severely. With extreme prejudice, demands the reviewer. So. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Nick gives it three stars, saying, I've never watched the original episode, but I can't imagine it working as well as the novel. Donald Cotton, who wrote both the original script and the novelization, displayed a terrible grasp of the history of the American West. 
but a playful willingness to attempt the style of the dime novel's overblown prose. As a result, half of the humor in the book comes from the Clanton brothers and their attempts at literary phrasing, and the other half from the near slapstick versions of Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, and others. The result is better than I would have expected. Although not a great story, it actually does explain why the renowned shooter Doc Holliday was using a, a shotgun at the OK Corral. Well, sort of. Okay, so it was really the William Hartnell incarnation of the Doctor, but the confusion of characters called Doc something or other and wearing frock coats could happen to anyone. And finally, Nicholas White gives it such a glowing review, I can't help but think it's five stars or not far from it, even though he does actually give it the stars. Donald Cotton's novelization of The Gunfighters is, I think, justly acknowledged as one of the great target novelizations. It takes the basic theme of the televised story, but messes around immensely with the actual plot and details, especially in the last episode. Whole story, the, told, the story is told in flashback, the dying Doc Holiday recounting events down at Beltline. The whole thing is done in a brilliant pastiche of Western idiom, and it is very entertaining. Though I am in the very small minority in fandom who actually enjoyed The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon, a song linking scenes of the TV version, which is, of course, dropped from the novel. So, <laughs> Allison, we're going to start with you because you appear to be in the minority opinion. I'm going to go with 1.5, which for me is really low for cotton. This is, is. this is bargain bin cotton. This is a cutout aisle clearance. And, uh, you know, everybody's got a, got mortgage or rent to pay cotton, it seemed like. So, you know, it wasn't, it was not odious. Well, except for the parts that were. It was, it had some, it did have some very entertaining parts. My expectations were high. The delivery was very low, and so perhaps I was personally disappointed in a way I hadn't been before. Okay. So 1.5. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with four. Four stars. Okay. Um, we're back to type, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. There you go. Um, yeah. I just it, like I said earlier, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was good to kind of see the story from the outside, um, in ways. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's a five. Wow. It's, yeah, I would actually give this wow. a five. This is up there with Whitaker's novelizations. It's up there with uh, Ian Martyr's stuff. His best stuff, not his worst hmm. stuff. Um, it's just, I, I read this book twice, the equivalent of twice within one week, hmm. listening to it and then reading it again. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I do not regret that and almost wish I could go back and do it again and wish the cotton had written more because my God, it just glows and shines in ways that books that we've had so far have not. You're a completely different cold medication than I am. I really <laughs> am. I guess I am. There had to be some bright spots on this week. And this was the bright spot, because, my good. lord. Well, good. Especially given what's coming, and given that we're... <sighs> Doctor Who novelizations are always sloppy. You're always going to have things that are either exactly what it is on the page, slightly less than it was on the page, or this weird thing, like the massacre, which was nothing like it was on the screen and is a very different animal like that one right there <laughs> um, creeping up on me for petting than it was on the page. And this this is uh, this is a very decent animal and I like it quite a bit. So five stars. Well it brought you joy. And yeah. it, it hit you right it hit me wrong. It hit you just the right way, just when you needed something yeah. fun and entertaining. That's great. I think so. And I hope it would do that again even if oh. I were in a kind of a pesky mood about it. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things where if you if you don't like westerns, if you don't like that kind of like, and I don't. That's a weird thing. I, I hate westerns. <laughs> I actually cannot stand westerns. And Spectre of the Gun is, I think, my least favorite Star Trek episode, just below Spock's brain. So thank you guys, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time. Well, here's the thing. We're celebrating Black History Month the only way we can, since we're still waiting for a genuine person of color on screen. We're instead going to be celebrating by reviewing the two back-to-back novels written by Ian Stewart Black, starting with his first novel, The Savages. Wait, is that real? Yes. Is this a white guy named Black? And that's Black History. Oh, may God forgive us. Yes, forgive us. And you specifically. And me specifically. It just worked out this way, the timing. (laughs) He wrote this book, the one after it, so both of the books we're doing in February are written by a man with the surname of Black, and both of them have to do with themes that actually have to do with Black History Month, so we're just going to ride this out as it'll be too embarrassing for words otherwise. In the meantime... If you've liked what you've heard here, or if you really don't like it now, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. You can also visit our newly pristine subreddit, tell us what racists we are, at www.reddit.com forward slash rw forward slash dwtargetbc. Also feel free to watch our videos at YouTube, follow us on Twitter, we're at dwtargetbc, or subscribe to us by the podcast provider of your choice. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Store. If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. It's getting loud.